Y'all please uh, take a seat. Take a seat, guys. Well, hey, welcome to the Springs Community Church. My name is John Alquist. I have the privilege of pastoring this church here. And man, it is a joy getting to come and hang out with you guys this morning. It was one of those two where even as I woke up and I walked outside, it was the first time. I don't know if you guys felt this. I'm not saying it's fall yet, but I started to feel it. Start, y'all, get one of, y'all feel that? Yeah, man, in Texas, you're like, oh, man, a sweater's coming. You just love it. I can't wait. Uh, but all I have to say, hey, if it's your first time with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. All we are is a group of people who, because of a love for Jesus Christ, we are imperfect, we are busted up, we are broken, we get it wrong still all the time. Yet because of what he did for us, we strive to yield, to give up, to surrender our life to him. So if you're here for the first time, or man, you're here working through faith and you've been here a long time, welcome. Where we've been the past few weeks, we took the past two weeks off, as you guys know, but before that, We've been, we're working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're in a series right now that we're calling Goals. The reason we're calling it Goals is because we're putting forward this church body, this church that would have been Thessalonica, as an example for us. As God is moving here, as God is growing in you, as he's growing in me, it always helps to put a target on the wall. And the church in Thessalonica, in many ways at this time, was a great example. Goals. But before we jump into that, I want to start out with a story with you guys. Um, Even as I was thinking about this, I was surprised thinking back on it. I'm going to take you back when I was a senior in high school. I'd made a decision in a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. I'll tell you about him a little later too. A good friend of mine, he came to me and he said with this seriousness, right? I must have been, I don't know, 17, something like that. With this severity, he looks at me and he says, why would you make that decision? Why would you ever do that? Right now, here's how serious it was. Here's, here's where it was. I, at that time, at the Walker High School, which is a little high school in Marietta, North Georgia, I'd made the choice to say no to be on the homecoming court. That's impressive, guys. No one's impressed by that. Like, that's my implicit humble brag through this. Thank you. They're definitely in high school. They get it. Right? But it's that thing where I can remember saying, hey, homecoming court, it's exciting. I like to think I would have gone on to win because the guy who won, I could have beat that guy. But all that to say is, right? I remember saying no to homecoming court where in high school, man, that was the thing. That was the goal. That's what you wanted to do. Now, I wasn't amazingly popular. I was just nice enough to everybody to where I was like, oh, he's an all right guy. Write his name down. But the reason that I said no is the part really I want to talk about. Because right then, as I was in 12th grade, the reason I'd said no, it actually started five years previously when I had said yes to something else. So the reason I said no was because the weekend of homecoming, I wanted to go play paintball. Anybody here ever played paintball? All right, well, I played a tremendous amount of paintball growing up. So here's how that all started. Fast back, or go backwards in time, five years. I'm in seventh grade. The thing I wanted to buy was this motorized moped, except it was called a go-ped. Cost $400. Okay, a couple people y'all know what I'm talking about. Cost $400. I had saved. 
I had done everything. I had certain chores that if I could do, I'd get paid. I'd worked all the way up. I'm in seventh grade to $200. It cost $400. I was not factoring taxes or shipping and handling. Hadn't even thought through that yet, but I was just imagining $400. I got in 200 and I went to my dad and I said, hey dad, I know there's a ton of work in the basement we need to do. If you let me do it, and I'm like negotiating with him, we're thinking like $200. And my parents at this time, they'd been helping me. They hadn't shot down the idea of a go pet in any way. We're coming along until the decision. Here's what I mean by the decision. I walk out through our kitchen onto our back porch. It's overlooking this yard, and my parents are sitting there on two of our like, lawn chairs outside. And they say to me, hey, John, we know you've been saving for this go-ped. We have to let you know, though, we're not going to let you get it. Because right then, it was confusing. I said, wait, 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 you've helped me all this time. And they looked at me, because seventh grade, I don't know, you're 11 or 12. And they looked at me and said, well, honestly, we thought you'd just forget about it like you tend to forget about everything else, which is very reasonable and fair, especially as parents, right? But what they realized is, no, John's really taking it seriously. John might do it and danger, me, motorcycles, helmets, I would have done something. It could have gone bad. So here's where that leaves me. Distraught broken and emotionally vulnerable. So I made some impulse decisions. That impulse decision at that time was one, because I wanted to, but two, I knew my parents didn't want me to. I went and I bought with my $200 my first paintball gun. I took that because that was my version of, okay, you won't let me get that? I'll go do this. I went and I bought it. I know what type you're wondering. It was a Tipman 98 Custom, pretty big deal. Right, but I ended up taking that, and here's what happened. From seventh grade to 12th grade, and this little hobby, you'd call it, I would have called it a sport. It wasn't out in the woods, and man, here's what I got to do with it. I got to travel, at first, the state of Georgia, playing in paintball tournaments. Then I got to travel to southeast towards the start of high school, and then through it, I'm on a team traveling around the country. These people gave me their stuff to play paintball. Here's the reason I tell you that. It was a blast. It was a blast. But the decision I made as a seventh grader impacted the decision I made as a 12th grader. Why did I say no to homecoming? Because I had said yes years before to paintball. The reason we start with that idea is because there's something in your life that you know and something that in my life that I know, and it's far more important than just paintball or not paintball. It's the idea of decisions today impact tomorrow. Your life, your future, in a lot of ways, what it is, it is built up of your choices. Now, some of those choices are major. Who do you marry? Where do you live? What's your career path? Where do you go to school? Some of those choices are minor. Paintball, go pet. Right, but your life is impacted by the decisions that you make. My life is impacted by the decisions that I make. And there's one decision that we're going to see today through the text that's more important than any of them. So today we're going to talk about how while your life is impacted by every decision, there's one decision that changes everything. There's one decision that everything else pivots around. And it's simply this. What do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ. Like, what do you believe, like sincerely believe, other words you could use that this text will use is trust, 
accept, place faith in, receive faith from? What do you believe about Jesus? Here's why I think this topic, it's vital to Christians. Right, so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's why I think today the Apostle Paul, he's writing this to a Christian church by, by way of reminder. And here's what I think he wants to remind us of today. The first thing he wants to remind us of is your faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of times, if you were like me when I was growing up, there was this view of I walked an aisle once. I made a decision once. I've done it once. Therefore, I can move on with my life. It's this transactional moment where once that transaction is made, really, I can leave that there. Here's what I would share with you. Is there truth that faith in Jesus Christ There's a one-time moment, absolutely. I don't ever want to take away from that. But for some reason, we as Christians, particularly me, the way I grew up viewing it, you call it Bible Belt, you call it cultural Christianity, you can call it whatever you want. We tend to think, okay, I believed, therefore, I'm good. And the faith we're going to talk about today, that moment, it does something with you. So for Christians, when we talk about belief, God requires nothing from you. But from that moment, he goes to work in everything in you. So that's why I think if you're here, man, we have to shake off the cobwebs of, okay, I prayed once, therefore I'm good. Or, hey, they prayed once, therefore I don't need to lean into any type of faith conversation with them. Or, hey, I asked them about their faith, and they said, hey, they go to church, therefore they must be Christian. Check the box, move on. That's not it. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul's going to say he gets it. Here's what I want to say. Welcome. I hope by the end of the day you'll really get an idea of two things. An idea of, first, this is why Christians care so much about Jesus. This is why we use terms like conversion or we are evangelists. It's because of topics like this, because this decision matters. So the first thing I hope, the reason I want you to lean is, I want you to at least understand what you're currently saying no to. But the second reason I think this matters, especially if you're not a Christian, is we tend to think that when we say no, our no doesn't impact anyone else. It's like our decision is made in isolation. And what scripture is going to say is, that's not true. Your faith decision impacts you and it has an influence in the lives of others. Where we're going to see this, we're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16 is we just talk about there's a decision that matters more than any other. And there's just two options for how you respond. There's different ways to get there, but really it boils up to two options. First option for you and for me. It's you can, you can receive it. You can receive, which leads to following God. Or the second one, you can reject. You can reject it which leads to frustrating God. Now, even when we use that language, people, depending on what what your background is and your view of God as a holy, righteous, angry, judgmental, jerk, authoritarian, tyrant, smiter. That's not what I'm talking about. 
there is a righteous judgment that we'll see, but I just need you to listen in. Because when I say frustration, I think it's different than what you imagine. So stay with me. To set up where we are and where we've been, Paul, he's writing this letter to a church that he planted. All planted means is founded. He's writing this letter to encourage them in their faithfulness. The first chapter, he just celebrated what they're doing. The second chapter where we are is he's reminding them of his heart, his love, the reason he came to them. And the reason we're going to talk about right here is he's reminding them, I came because of this pivotal decision. You have to do something with it. It is a divine fork in the road. And everyone walks that road. So let's look at the text. Read with me, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. We're just going to read verses 13 through 14, and then we'll stop. And we also thank God constantly for this. And then he goes on to explain why. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea. How did they become imitators? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. First idea out of this, as you begin to talk about it, is the theme of there's a key decision you and I, we all have to wrestle with. It's what do you do with Jesus Christ? And the first option for what you do, can there be different ways there? Yes, of course. But it all boils up to one of two options, and your first option is receive. Receive. And what does that do? Which leads to following God. My first point is receive, which leads to following God. Here's how you see this through this text. The first idea I want to put before you is Paul. He uses this beautiful play on words here where he outspokenly celebrates what they've done. He says, hey, when I came to you and I told you these things, here's what you saw it as. Not the word of man, but the word of God. Thessalonica, it was in Greece. It was kind of in the northeastern corner of Greece. From it, you could have seen Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus, Greek gods. So here's what I'm telling you. Polytheism, pagan gods, world's philosophies, the best ideas of men. Thessalonica had it. They had it all. They were used to people coming through because it was on this walking path that you could take through. So preachers, folks, true people like Paul, other people going to proclaim whatever they believed in, they would have gone through there. These folks would have had the speaking circuit traveling through. And Paul says to them, hey, you knew when I came it was different. Why? I didn't give you my best form of wisdom and the way I think man works his way to God. I gave you the truth. And that truth came in two ways. One, what Christians we'd call the gospel. Like, even as you sit here, hear, hear this. Let, let me ask you this question. Don't, don't answer audibly. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel? How would you in your head answer that? Because that's the first thing Paul brought them, that they said, that is the word of God, not the word of man. And it's simply this, this idea, you don't have to work your way to God. God has come to you. 
that all of this is true. There was a baby born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. And then he came for about three years to proclaim a truth to the world, and that truth got him killed. But he had to die to pay the penalty for every wrong thing you've done and every wrong thing I've done. And it was in his death where he looked at God and he said, I'll pay for everything they've done. And then he turns to you and to me. And he doesn't demand we work for it. He doesn't demand we change. He doesn't demand we get better. He doesn't demand that we just stop doing everything wrong in our life. He looks at us and he just says, believe. And then to prove it all, to sign the letter, he rose from the grave. The good news Paul came was telling people, you can be restored with God in heaven. And for some of you, you may not think you even need that. And let me tell you, you do. That's the first thing they saw. This was not just the word of men. This was the word of God. And the second thing, and this is, we're just going to spend a little bit of time here. He just showed you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. So right there, the word of God, what that does is that essentially puts the Apostle Paul's words on par, equal to, same status as Old Testament scripture to these people. So what I'm telling you is these folks, what they would have seen is God through Paul. He has come with divine revelation. Every one of us in life goes through seeking what's true. Where do I find truth? How do I get it? Where do I get purpose? How is that established in my life? Doesn't matter who you are, I can guarantee you have wrestled with a sense of meaninglessness and a lack of purpose and wondering, is all this real? Guaranteed. And here's what these people knew, even though they wrestled with it, even though they thought about it, they knew. This isn't a book written by some crafty men trying to tell a tale. It has a divine author written through the personalities of men in a way to where it is authoritative and we can trust it. It's the word of God, not the word of men. And he goes on to say he knows that they believed it this way. Why? They received it. How could he tell? Because receiving, what does it lead to? Following God. And he sets up language. It went to work in you believers. And then it even says, hey, you became imitators of churches in Judea. So here, here's what he's talking about. This church in Thessalonica, it was basically getting made fun of, persecuted, hated on, likely beaten, perhaps killed for their faith. And you know what they did? They took it. They took it. And they didn't punt on Jesus Christ. The storm came and they endured. And he makes a reference to, that's just like the churches in Judea. Judea, that would be like almost uh, the mid-cities in between Austin and San Antonio. That whole region surrounding Jerusalem. That would have been Judea. And Paul's saying the churches that first started there, the, the churches that first sprung up, this would be Acts 2 if you want to go look at it, and then they're on. They all came around there. And what happened to them? They were persecuted. And they endured it. And so Paul's saying, just like your big brothers in the faith, the other churches 
you kept going. Faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be persecution. It can just be pursuit of God. If you have a moment where you say, I walked an aisle and I believed, or my parents there and I checked, for me it was I got a little handout when I was 12 because I'd finished confirmation. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world? There was literally a checkbox, yes, checkbox, no, checkbox, checkbox, I don't know. I totally checked, I don't know. But here's what I'm telling you if you have a checkbox moment, what a checkbox moment should be followed by is a changed life. Does that mean you get it all together? Absolutely not. Does that mean that you don't fall over and over again? No. But the desire of the heart changes. You become an imitator like others. I, I saw this get to happen, um, I don't know, six years ago, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine. He went to buy a futon. So what do you do? Gets on Craigslist because wants to buy the cheapest thing he can find. Gets on Craigslist. He calls me because it's Craigslist, so don't go alone. You walk into this guy's house. We get there, and it's Craigslist. So I was newer in my faith at the time, and I'm thinking through, okay, we got to tell people about this. Best part about Craigslist, never going to see him again. So I have a total chance to just practice sharing my faith. So we walk into this guy's apartment. You go up a couple stairs. You see him there. Hey, I'm a nice guy. Start asking questions. I, I think I said, like, hey, man, do you have a faith? And he looks at me kind of funny. I'm like, like a spirituality, form a belief system. Right? So through that conversation, we end up getting to, well, hey, Jesus Christ, he changed my life. I thought it was all just something Christmas and Easter I do as a tradition with my family. Nah, man. Christmas and Easter is true. Story is true. Right? And I ended up hanging out with him. He's looking at me weird. And through that time, he comes to share. He says, hey, man, I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of that. He was really kind with it, but it was much more of a, hey, if you want to tell yourself that to feel better, okay. And that's where right then makes sense. You're sharing, hey, man, you ever want to come just hang out? You want to just come hang out? By kindness, he said, yes. Here's what ended up happening. Went and sat down with him, ate some meals, hung out, came, sat there, had coffee, all that kind of stuff. And through conversation, got to know him. His name is Stephen. And Stephen, as I was talking to him, what he came to say is one of the things he really didn't trust was, I don't know if I could trust this. How could it not be corrupted? How could it not be broken? How could it not be twisted? And then the gospel idea, you're saying there's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's a very exclusive idea. And man, I wasn't fancy. I wasn't elegant. I was just going to say, yeah, I think you can trust this. And yeah, I think there's one way, and his name's Jesus. Not because of anything I did, but only because this is just what God does. He went to work on changing Stephen's heart. A few months later, Stephen, he became a follower of Jesus Christ just like me. He ended up getting connected. He joined a group with me. We started attending this Bible study together. We're hanging out and we're seeing each other. And Stephen, what's he doing? He's still working through these questions. Like, can he trust it? He's wrestling. He's spending time in God's word. Coolest thing, though. Just because of life and circumstance, I ended up not seeing him for, I don't know, I want to say about a year. And up on Sunday, I ran into him at church. And Stephen pulls me aside. He says, man, it's so good to see you. And I ask him, well, hey, man, what have you been up to? And he told me how through that time he'd gone and he'd really come to learn, he'd really come to see 
This is not the words of men. It's the word of God. And Stephen is a 25-year-old accountant getting after it. He joined a volunteer team where part of his job is people, they would submit these like Christian devotionals based on scripture. And he so wanted to learn it, he proofread them. And then he'd make sure everything was accurate as they submitted it. What happened to Stephen? Through God, he chose option one. Receive. Receive. And what does receiving do? It leads to following. Why? Not the words of men, but the word of God. Let's look at the text again. Jump back with me if you've got it. 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to read 14 and we're going to go all the way down through 16. For you brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Now he's still talking about those who who opposed God. And he says, and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. You think Paul wanted people to come to know Christ? You think Paul wanted to be an evangelist? You think Paul walked around trying to think through, who do I tell? How do I share God? How do you use me? Yes. I think Paul would love if we did that too. If I did that too. He goes on, that they might be saved. And then here, he gives a motive. They've hindered God so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Man, so if you don't normally go to church, you might tend to think, hey, every Sunday we preach hell, the wrath of God, I don't know, brimstone, which I don't entirely even get what brimstone is, to be honest, but that's just what we do. Here's what I would say. Not every time, but when God's word brings it up, yeah, we do, because it is a reality. So the second option, not out of fear, but hear me for the beginning of it, okay? So remember, hear me for the beginning of it. Second option is you can reject it. It's reject, which leads to frustrating God. Let me show you that from this. There's three ideas that if you have a Bible, you can write them in there or think in your head. There's three groupings in this section. What certain rejectors did what all rejectors do, and then three, why God pursues every rejector. Right, so what did certain rejectors do? He gives three lists. He says, hey, Jews, they killed Jesus Christ. Jews weren't the only ones who killed him. Romans technically had to put him to death. But was it Jewish hostility Pharisees, Jewish people who led to the death of their own Messiah. Yes. Yes. The second thing he goes on to say, what did certain rejectors do? Killed the prophets. So prophets, likely what he's referencing to is, like in your Old Testament, there's sections and time periods where there's all these, like you go to First and Second Kings, for example, all these kings, 
And it's this theme of the prophets that God had sent to the people to say to them, God loves you, turn, this is true. He cares about you and he wants to set you free. Those prophets, people, through their hostility, through their actions, they've killed. You can see it in the end of uh, Hebrews 11. And then the third, he talks about, and what else did those certain people do? Now he's talking to the Thessalonians here, the locals. They drove us out. It's Acts 17. We read it a couple weeks ago. It's when they came, and through persecution, Paul had to flee by night. So when you reject, what did certain rejectors do? They led to the death of Christ, the death of the prophets, and they drove out a man of God seeking to bring peace to a city. But here's the thing I think applies to all of us. What do all rejectors do? What did I do in my life before I received? What did I do? There's two things. They displease God. They displease God. And the second, they oppose all mankind by hindering the Gentiles from hearing this news and being saved. Let's first talk about displease, right? In order to understand displease, the first thing you gotta ask is, what does it take to please God? This is such, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you grew up in church, if you go to the Springs, I pray you have a death grip on how to answer this question. Because it's so much identity in how you view him. Is he an authoritarian, tyrant, jerk, just looking to smite people if they don't believe this glory thief who cares for no one but himself? Or is he after his glory as he loves everyone? It's the character of God. Hebrews 11.6, write that down if you got it. We, we won't have it up here. But it says, if anyone seeks to please God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to please him. If anyone seeks to please God, he must believe that he exists. So you got to be a Christian. you got to be a Christian. And, and, that God rewards those who seek him. What's pleasing to any dad when the child acknowledges them as father? And when the child says, I want to get to know my dad. That's it, Christian. So what is displeasing these people that have not acknowledged Christ as king? And the second thing that all rejectors do, they oppose mankind. They oppose mankind by hindering ministry to the Gentiles. Here's the theme. Uh, one scholar, he said it this way, and it was intense, but I appreciated it. One of the scariest things about unbelief, one of the scariest things about unbelief is not your own rejection of God, but how your rejection of God influences others to reject him. So no faith decision, Christian, non-Christian, is made in isolation. You see this supremely true in families. The faith of the parent impacts the faith of the child. The faith of the child, it could impact the faith of the parent. The faith of the sister, the faith of the friend impacts the faith of the friend. The conversations of the, of the students when they're hanging out at the lunch table impacts the faith of the other students. All he's talking about, there is a ripple effect of influence 
in belief. And rejectors of God, they hinder the ripple from going in a positive way. That's not God coming and destroying you if you don't believe. That's just a statement of reality. Many people who don't believe are grateful for that because they don't want others to believe. All rejectors of God stay in a place of it's displeasing. Why? Because he loves you as a father loves a child and he wants you to believe this is true. And the second reason, because you hinder other people from hearing about it. It's the idea when you curse the light, you attract the dark. Final thing. Why does God pursue people who reject him? Why is Paul sending this as a reminder to them so they can go and love, pursue, and warn the people there, even the ones that are persecuting them? It's because he knows, hey, they, by their sins, they store up their sins until it's full. A sin is a wage. It's like a debt. It's something that's owed. It can increase in the same way in this life. Faithfulness. Faith in Christ between every Christian is the same. Faithfulness amongst different Christians is different. Disbelief amongst every Christian is the same. Rejection of God and actions against him, you store it up. There can be a difference. And that's where God, he goes on, he, he says, because the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Why do you think throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul is writing them to encourage them to say, keep enduring. Remember, he celebrated them suffering persecution. Why do you think God Almighty, through Paul, is writing to say, endure persecution. Stay there. Don't turn on them. Don't curse them. Love them. Why do you think God himself chose to come down knowing they will kill me? To endure the persecution. Why do you think Christians today one of the things Jesus says will happen to you is you will endure suffering on behalf of your faith. There's multiple ways to answer that, but there's one character of God answer that we got to know, church. It's because God loves them. God loves them, and the gospel can bring redemption. The guy who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, he was, people might say, people say, those churches in Judea that were being persecuted, he's like the godfather of that. He led that. He was there. There was one Christian who proclaimed his love for Jesus Christ, and Paul, the author of this, said, kill him. He was zealous in his persecution of the way. Christians suffered because of it. Why? Because God wanted to change him from Saul to Paul. Wanted to change his heart to where the man who was once the persecutor now claims endure persecution. Why? Because when they reject, they usually, they don't fully know. 
Be gracious to them. Like God is zealous in his counseling of Christians to love non-Christians. Why? Because God knows. And stay with me, especially if you're not a Christian. Hear this part. This isn't out of fear-mongering. Because God knows the other side of eternity. He will be zealous in his judgment. You see this all throughout your Bible. There's a place, we're going to put it up on the screen, John 3, 36, where Jesus himself, and he talks about this a lot, but there's a place that's always stuck with me that I've thought of, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, they shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Christ came because we have a major decision. And he came for you to place faith in him and by doing so, remove the wrath of God from you. And when we don't live that way, we hinder others. And Christians, when we are generally indifferent, apathetic in our faith, we're some of the greatest hindrances of all. I can remember growing up, I had a uh, well, discussion around my family a lot of times was, hey, Dad, why is it that just Christians go to heaven? Why is that? I, I grew up going to a school where I was blessed from about fifth grade and then kind of eighth grade and on. My two closest friends, one was Jewish, the other was Hindu. They were in my wedding, great friends. And I can remember sitting in a car with my sister on a road trip asking my dad this question. That question came to influence me, inform me, because they became my dear friends. I can remember talking to them, them asking me about my Christian. I became a Christian later in life. I would have said I was then, but I was, I was confused. And I got to know them, and we hung out. And I tell you what, man, we had some great times. They are good men. I was talking with one of them not long ago. My life through high school, through college, it looked just like theirs if not far more broken. I can remember, I'd gotten to know them, we'd hung out, we'd known each other forever. I can remember I moved, because they were still in Atlanta, I moved from Atlanta to Dallas. I came out. Shortly thereafter, I became a Christian. I understood Christianity. It's not just something you tag onto your name because your parents took you to church growing up. It's something you claim in the depth of your soul because Jesus Christ, he saved you. But I had my friends there, and they believed different. They thought different, and I loved them, and I still love them. I can remember I was a consultant at a college. I got put on a project back in Atlanta. I go back, and one evening I get off work, and I have free time, and I reach out to them and say, hey, man, you want to hang out? We ended up going to, there was a Barnes & Noble, because Barnes & Noble, one I just like them, they always have a Starbucks, all that kind of stuff. Great place to just hang out and talk. And I can remember going there, and my heart was nervous because this was the first time I'd hung out with him since I became a Christian. I didn't really know what to say, how to say it, or anything. And I can remember sitting down with them and them asking me about Texas, and I could not tell them the number one thing that had happened to me. And I sat there with them in this Barnes and Noble with this barista that I kept thinking she's trying to listen in, but I just had to let it go because maybe she needed to listen in. Sat there and explained hey guys, I've used this term my whole life. 
I was wrong. Here's what happened to me. I received it. And it's changing me. Not that I have to change, but it is changing me. And I can remember looking at them and them saying, John, yeah, you've always been a Christian. I don't get what the big deal is. You've always been this way, which led to a lot of conversations. But here's the reality. My life up to that point, the nights when they came and I was more blackout, I was more, yeah, again, some of the stories. I had more brokenness, more pain, more bills that I couldn't pay the next day, more text messages that I didn't know where I sent, more of a consistently dysfunctional behavior. They looked at me because of that and they said, John, you've always been this way. I don't see what's different. My life up to that point, with or without intentions, had been a hindrance to their understanding of the Christian faith. I had made it confusing. I'd muddied the waters. And you know who can overcome that? Jesus. And you know who can redeem that? Jesus. You know why I don't have to regret that? Jesus. But the first thing I had to do with my friends was sit there and say, will you forgive me for how my life has confused you? And they looked at me like I was super weird to say something like that. But hey, will you forgive me for how my life has confused you? It's different. And then with them, hey church, hear this, with them, because nobody likes thinking this way today, with them leaning over and saying, there's a God in heaven and he loves you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. If you believe in him, you will spend eternity with God in heaven. If you don't, if you deny God in this life, God will honor that decision in the next. If you don't want God here, he will not force you to be with him there. And I can remember this real clear moment where we're sitting there in Barnes and Noble and looking at him and saying, but he loves you, and I still totally love y'all. I can't wait to keep hanging out. They came later. One of them came with me to church. Nobody since trusted Christ. But man, they've gotten to see my life change. Here's why. There's a decision in life that impacts everybody, and it's a decision that impacts you more than anything else. It's the decision of what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? There's two options. Our first option is receive it, which leads to following God. And there's a second option, reject it, which leads to frustrating God. And when I say frustrating, it's displeasing to a father when the son doesn't call him dad. It's displeasing to a father when a son goes and confuses others he's seeking to adopt. But does that frustration keep him from pursuing him? Never. Until they go from one life to the next. Here's what I want to ask of folks here. Right? If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I think there's two ideas I'm asking you to walk away with. Right? The first idea I'm asking, like I am using biblical language, imploring you on behalf of God. Believe this to be true. Maybe you're like me, man. You thought Christmas and Easter, traditionalism with family. Christmas is true. Easter is true. 
Jesus loves you and he died for you. And all he asks is that you believe. But if that's not you today, when you're here and you're still wrestling with faith, here's the second thing I want to ask you to do. Reject apathy. Reject apathy. For so many years of my life, I had this faith view that I'd walked away from, and I was just numb and indifferent, and I didn't care. And you know what I did during that time? Every now and then I went to church. If that's you, I pray God's spirit works in you to simply say, maybe I should seriously think about this. Maybe I should have a conversation with a trusted loved one or a trusted friend who knows to help me grow. So if you're here and you're wrestling with faith or the idea of it first, man, believe. Second, reject apathy. Man, the third idea, and this is really for followers of Jesus, like we begin to think it's the same thing as we said before, that faith in Christ, it's this transactional moment. I did it when I was at camp when I was 12, so I'm done, and now I've gone, and I've passively attended church services on Sunday for the past two to three decades. That's a great start. That's a great start. Keep going. Because while there is absolutely a one-moment thing, there is then still a daily choice to imitate, to follow the lead of the Father. I actually got to see this with my daughter. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Lily. She's this adorable little tyke of a thing, right? We play this game where I'll come home and we've got a yellow lab. So a lot of times we'll go, we got this carpet in our living room and I'll get down on the carpet and I'm hanging out with Lily and I'm hanging out with a dog, right? And I'm laying there. And then Lily will wrestle around, we'll play for a little bit. I'll get the dog and then she'll go and she'll climb up on the sofa that we have. And the sofa kind of continues down and then it has a chase. One of those things where you can like put your uh, feet up on it, this chase that's on it. And Lily, she likes running down the sofa and coming back. And she comes back and there's this chase part. And I'm sitting there and I'm seeing her and she's playing. And all of a sudden, Lily, she gets to the corner on the chase and I'm at the end of the chase. And she looks at me. She gets this huge smile. And here's what Lily does. She looks at me, she gets this huge smile and she takes off. Now she's like one and a half, so it's like this like, like awkward thing. But she takes off down this chase where for her, she probably gets a solid eight steps in takes off off this chase. I'm at the end of it. I'm trying to figure out what are we doing here? And Lily, to the best of her one and a half year old body can do, jumps. And in that moment, man, I kicked in on, catch her, right? Because dad's there. Lily runs. She jumps. I reach up. I catch her right there. Immediately, I start to think, hey, sweetheart, you got to be careful. You can't come and jump off that. And about three seconds tracking that thought down, I stopped. And I said, no, get back up, do it again. Why? I will always catch you, Lily. Lily would come and we played this game where she'd get back up on the couch, she'd stand there, she'd smile again. She knew I had catched her, she'd already jumped once and she did it again, she did it again, she did it again. And every time, besides the tickle fest that happened right after, every time, you know what happened? She trusted me to catch her more and more. Here's the reason I share that. 
For Lily to jump off that, I know she's one and a half, so the illustration breaks down, but stay with me, right? For Lily to jump off that, what if I sat there and said, hey, Lily, here's why you can jump. Here's why, if you jump, how I'll catch you. Here's how I'm strong enough to catch you. You're not gonna fall, I'll be there. Jump, sweetheart, jump, I can plead with her. She could have known the mechanics of jumping, how to jump, all that. None of it would have mattered if she never jumped. That's the first one. Second one, once she jumped once, she kept jumping. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band up, all right? We're gonna close with one song as we get out of here. But the thought I want you guys to think about, even in that idea, is the second jump. She kept jumping, why? Because every time she reaffirmed a trust in her father. There's some of y'all here where as you think through faith, you could tell me the dimensions of the couch, how hard you need to jump, where you need to jump to, the fact that the father will catch you. You could quote it. You could turn there. You could know it all. You could tell others about it. Yet you never jumped. You never felt the embrace of what it's like to pray in dependence that the father catches you. That's belief. Church, those wrestling with faith, jump. And then there's those of you here who you've jumped in the past, man. You had the moment where Christ, he takes hold of the heart. He brings change. He brings transformation. Yet it's been a long time since you sincerely depended on your Father in heaven to catch you. You stop getting back up on the couch. You stop coming back down the chase. You stop launching yourself off into the arms of a father. Give it good reasons, give it rationalization, give it busyness, give it career, give it kids. It doesn't matter. But what has been a long time of you not having done is not having felt the embrace of the father. And you know what? He sits there and he's not even mad. He just waits and he says, come. Let me pray, and then we'll sing a song that we would do that. Father, I thank you for that idea. I pray you would make me one who jumps. You would make me one who comes to see you and keeps jumping time and time again. Would you bless us now as we sing this?